Brewers Publications, a.k.a. BP, is the largest publisher of contemporary brewing literature for today's craft brewers, homebrewers, and beer enthusiasts. With over 50 titles to choose from, there's a beer book to fill most needs. Whether you're just discovering beer or are a seasoned professional, BP is the go-to choice for brewers looking to expand their knowledge and hone their craft. Check out the complete BP catalog at BrewersPublications.com. Experimental Brewing, The Brew Files, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more story, less time, less ukulele. Well, hey, the brew is out there. But on this episode, we're leaving our comfy confines here in America, and we're traveling all the way down to well, the Southern Hemisphere, and we're going into Australia to go talk about Australian uh, brewing, both historical and modern, and uh, how you delve into both finding out about historical recipes, and what do you do about trying to recreate them with our modern ingredients. All right, and I have on the line one good old Mr. Peter. Mr. Peter, say hi to everybody and introduce yourself. Oh, good day. Um... My name's Peter Simons. Um, I'm the author of Bronze Brews, which deals with uh, historic recreations of Australian beers. Let's uh, get a little bit uh, into the book, Bronze Brews, which, if I remember correctly, you released that last year. Yeah, I, uh, I self-published it last year. It took me um, four years to uh, put it all together. And as you would probably well appreciate, having written several books, virtually the whole of the last year, was spent editing, refining, and waiting for those last few recipes to be brewed by uh, my colleagues in the Extra Special Brewers Home Brewers Club. Most of the recipes in the book were trialed to make sure that they actually worked and were drinkable. It was a big undertaking. I have my copy in front of me because when I saw that you released it, I was like, ooh, that's a subject I know nothing about. I have to go find something out about it. It's a dense 300 and some odd pages or 370 pages. I can only imagine that this must have been a long bout of research for you. Yes. Uh, the last 12 months of the editing, I went from 1,200 pages down to the book that it is. <laughs> Doing my own self-editing, I switched from being writer mode to that doesn't make any sense. That's got to go. So I ended up with quite a large pile of unfinished and loose ends generally, which has been enough to set me off on book number two. I was going to say, in a writer's perspective, everything that ends up on the floor is just material for future works. Correct. There were so many things that hadn't had. Research is a, is a weird thing. You go into an archive full of moldy books and they give you a box that you've selected. You have no idea what's in the box other than mold and a few other things. As I've progressed over the years, I've learned from being uh, very naive about these things. I've learned to uh, selectively choose boxes, to focus in on ingredients, process, and, of course, the production logs. You very seldom find a historic recipe. What you do find, if you're lucky, is a, is a series of production records that you can average out to work out what was the specification of that particular beer. Right. I mean, they're not like uh, homebrewers keeping a copy of every brew day. It's laid out completely. 
you know, I use 10 pounds of this and 20 pounds of this. And it's much more like, okay, we, we know what the recipe is and it, this is how we brewed it today. Yeah. Depending which era you're in, in the 19th century, things were pretty rudimentary as to what they actually recorded. As you get to about 1870s, 1880s, with the advance of more scientific brewing rather than practical brewing, which was mm-hmm. you know, empirical, they did tend to document a lot more. But all the units are in pounds per barrel, quarters, pounds, which for somebody that's in the metric world uh, is uh, a challenge in its own right. You know, how many, how many lengths to a furling, how many pints and this and that and the other. And, of course, it all changes over time, too. That gets a little fun. Well, quarters are particularly, they can be a volumetric measure or a weight measure. So whilst it may say a quarter in the, in the record, you need to get a feel for whether that's a volumetric measure or actually a weight. And, and of course, that, that makes a big difference to the percentages of, of, of a grist, say. When you think about it, we, we here in the States still deal with that. You know, we still have volumetric ounces and weight ounces. That, that's still a challenge today in recipes. Let's talk a little bit about getting into the archives because, I mean, how did you first, you know, start to take your beer obsession this way? You know, like a lot of us are just, I want to go make a beer. But here you are now suddenly going, I must go find moldy boxes full of weird papers. Yeah, well, I've, I've been a long time uh, viewer of Ron Pattinson's blog shut up Mm -hmm. about Barclay Perkins and had five, six years ago recreated quite a few of UK recipes. And I thought, oh, this is good. What struck me at the time, and the time was when I was asked by Jamil to do um, uh, Australian sparkling ale on the Brewing Network, Brewing with Style, I think it was at the time. I went to the library. I like libraries. It's one of those perversions, I suppose. After doing that, that little bit of research for that program, I wondered why nothing had been written about actual beers. Lots of brewing corporate histories in uh, around the 1980s when the uh, breweries that remained were in their centenary mode. They're all the corporate stuff and brands, but nothing about the beer. So I went to the Powerhouse Museum, which is a... not so much a library, but they've they've got an archive of artifacts mostly, but some documents. And there I found one of the earliest brewing records I found, which was for the Tooth Brewery in eighteen forty something. Wow. And I thought I thought, oh, this is good. And so I everywhere I go, I do the do you know where I could find more of information like this? And they said, Oh, there's a there's an archive in Canberra called the Noel Butlin Archive, part of um, the Australian National University. He said, there's a lot more stuff there. I said, oh, okay. In between the day job, I finally got to Canberra, which is a couple of hours from Sydney, and had a good rummage in there. And I found probably 20 years worth of records from the 1910s to the 1930s uh, for Toos. and those production records plus huge volume of other information because they had a major tied house estate so a lot of their documents were about property and development and stuff but tucked away in there 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 were enough brewing documents to get me well started and then the the other major thread was uh, chuck han is a uh, fairly legendary person in the brewing scene in australia I managed to get to have a talk with him for an hour. He gave me 
the name of Bill Taylor, who at the time was working for Lion, who facilitated my access to the TUI's archive in Auburn in Sydney and their absolute treasure trove. They had brewing books from 1910 through to the 1970s. I'm just trying to picture walking into a room and seeing that and go, my nerd fantasies are fulfilled, believe me. Well, it wasn't quite like that. I had to do the induction because I was actually on the brewery site. So I've got my steel-toed boots on, got my, my proper glasses. I didn't have to wear a hard hat. But the room wasn't – it was just a room in the brewery, and everything was just piled on top of everything else. So it sounds like an archivist's dream or a nightmare. <laughs> and, and a nightmare more like because it, it took me the best part of a day – to actually work through and, and sequence the books in a way that I understood what was there. It's just not their primary focus. They're, they're in the 21st century. They're, they're not really interested. I was going to say, I'm trying to picture what a brewery like this is really going to do with their archive other than just to go, look, see, we have old books, you know, <laughs> old logs. And uh, yeah, you're right. I, I can totally imagine it just being an afterthought because, well, there's no day-to-day -day value with this. No. And... There probably isn't a present value. However, it's, I, I guess it's, it, it's hard to explain. I, I feel as though, and it is a feeling more than anything else, that unless somebody actually takes the time and effort to, to do this, that eventually will go the way of so many other uh, historic documents. They'll go to the tip. Well, so you're, you're, you're doing noble work then. You're, you're preserving. Well, I think so. And the book was a summary of an amount of that information. Because the internet is a wonderful thing, and in Australia there's a new free-to-access newspaper archive called Trove. And you can search, search on Trove, and I use Trove quite extensively to find contextual information for how the breweries were operating. And occasionally you get description of plant. So you put that all together and you get a bit of what I was aiming to do was to get the beer in context, have a fair idea about the process and put that together into a recreation that as best as possible, because we were never going to know how it actually tasted, would be something worth brewing and trying. Let's talk a little bit about some of the information that you found, because I'm still just picturing like finding all this old information and trying to make heads or tails of it. When somebody says to me, hey, Australian beer, yeah, obviously as a beer lover, the very first thing I think it was just the first one that you talked about, you know, sparkling ale. But then I think if you talk, if you talk to most people around the world and say Australian beer, they're thinking, you know, piss water lagers. But it, it's very clear from reading through the book that there is a much, much richer history and more style diversity to Australian beer than I think ever gets communicated to even the most ardent of beer lovers. So if you could uh, dig in a little bit and uh, talk about some of that and what you found that was both kind of surprising and not surprising to you. You'd have to say that, that the marketing of beer from the 1950s onwards was very successful. They, they managed to convince the world that uh, Australian beer was Foster's. Whilst there may be some people that have drunk Foster's, and I, I must admit in my youth, I, I have drunk Foster's and my youth was a fair while ago. And it used to come in a big tin called a depth charge. And it was the height of sophistication to be drinking that compared to um, old that you'd go and go to the pub and 
you drink old. Well, I drank old because I, I liked old. And old was generally an ale. And it was a nice 4.5%, a nice quaffing beer at the pub. What I've come to realise is that the marketing guys did such a good job that anybody who would casually think about Australian beer will say lager, uh, whether that be Forex lager, VB, and all the rest. If you're into your craft brewing, you're probably going to be aware of Coopers and Sparkling Ale. And if I discount the last 15 years or so when the the craft beer industry here has, uh, has really taken off, you really only had the opportunity if you wanted to have a beer in a place that only had fairly ordinary lager, then you'd ask for a Coopers because at least you knew you were going to get something that was drinkable. So where I've got to in my research is that ale was in the public bar, triple X or sometimes called old. That was the beer that was drunk for two thirds of the 20th century. Come about the 1960s, 1970s, the big brewers changed their plant to more lager-oriented plant, and then you've got lagers still called old, but they're generally facsimiles of the of the ales. Apart from Tui's old, which is still an ale. Well, and I think it's interesting that you know you've mentioned VB, the, that bitter name still survives, even though it has absolutely nothing to do with it. Well, there's two other things we need to chat about. We need to chat about stout because I like stouts, uh, so we'll talk about that. But the bitter, in my current set of researching for whatever the book insert name here will be after Bronze Brews, what I've seen more and more of is when plant was changed in the first half of the, well, around the 1920s to lager plant, they introduced a bitter ale, and a bitter ale was typically with a lager yeast. So that that was the bitter ale, and that was typically bottled. Whilst a lot of people would say Australia is quite egalitarian, as far as drinking goes, there was the people that could afford the bottle beer, the premium imports of the day, and there was everybody else, the working man or woman, very rarely, who would be drinking in the public bar, and that was typically draft beer, and that draft beer was ale. That was pretty much it for for most of the 20th century. The one thing that has persisted despite all these other changes is stout. The big breweries like Lion and CUB still brew stouts. So you have Sheaf Stout and Abbotsford Invalid Stout, and they're really nice stouts. Good, meaty, current BJCP terms, they'd be double stoutish. And they're, they're good drinking beers. When you look at Lion, they've got a, a Southwark stout from South Australia, and that's sitting around 7.3%. That's you're sort of foreign exportish there. It's there is there are, from what I've got, a lot more stouts to come in whatever the book will be next. Well, I was going to say because I know that in Bronze Brews you cover a couple of different periods of Australian brewing and the the rise of there's some rise of lager in there, but there is a, a fair amount of the old or the triple X ales in here. I was kind of like really really surprised because it was before I'd read the book I had never even really heard of the style. It was like going, hey, that looks like a really good just beer to drink. If, if I was to compare with what I understand of um, North America and in particular the U.S., the U.S. was influenced heavily by an influx of German brewers. That wasn't really the case 
that I can see in Australia. There are two areas that I that are still unknown to me. That's in Melbourne. I've not had the opportunity to delve into um, any archives in Melbourne. That will either confirm what I think or dispel what I think. And I, until I, I actually have the opportunity to have a look there, I can't. I wouldn't like to put forward an opinion. In terms of the the triple X, its lineage is um, is mild. Mild from the 18th century was a um, a present drinking beer rather than a aged stock type beer. It changed through the you get to the beginning of the 20th century, and triple X is now the the quaffing beer at the pub, with the exception of possibly the amount of sugar that's used. It's not dissimilar to English milds of the same period. So it tends to be a, a brownie or verging towards black beer, not a pale beer. Um, there is plenty. It, it was in the brewing logs, uh, the Tui's logs, it was just classed as ordinary. And I, I thought, well, that's not very... Calling something ordinary is not really a very good descriptor, but that's what they called it in the brewery. And then as soon as they introduced the lager, they called the lager special. Well, I suppose you can't can't call anything special unless you've got an ordinary to compare it with. <laughs> Funny how that works. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, some of the Triple X uh, recipes in the book, Toos and Tui's Bulk. And, I mean, right around the time of World War One or so, we're seeing them at the recipes you have in here are in the mid-1040s. And, yeah, those are kind of slightly stronger than I think what a lot of people think of mild. But then again, we know that mild reduced over time. But the one thing that really strikes me, and you, you touched on it just a little bit earlier, was in looking at the ingredients list, there is a lot more sugar in the Australian recipes that, that you have in here than I would normally think of in a lot of British recipes, even though British recipes use sugar as well. But I've seen a lot more of your gravity and extract being drawn in from sugar. Do I have that right? Or Yeah, yeah. It, it's If you like it, whereas perhaps the adjunct of choice in North America was, was corn and possibly a bit of rice, it's it's seldom in, a, in the Australian logs that I've seen maize used few instances, but not a lot. The primary dilutant to make a, uh, a bright beer of the nitrogen content uh, has been sugar. And I've, I've struggled in, in the UK that you can see number one, number two, number three, we're all, all grades of invert sugar. It seems to me in British trained brewers that came in the late 1800s, they brought with them the same ideas of using invert. When you get to the first half of the 20th century, the evidence is not that I've got so far. It's not really conclusive that the big brewers were inverting the sugar on site. You get to the 70s, 60s and 70s, and nearly all the brewers are getting their sugar in liquid form. Whereas if you were to characterize English brewing logs, of which I have gigabytes, I can see there that they were using invert at a fairly constant level, either one, two or three or possibly four in stouts. The difference here is I think a lot of cases of just using straight white cane sugar. And that white cane sugar has gone up to 50% in 
the 1800s. More typically in the 20th century, you're sitting somewhere between 25 to 30% sugar. It's fair to say that just like in North America, the response for using sugar or some sort of low protein, cheap sugar source was to deal with shortages in terms of actual good grade barley and still get, still get your gravity up and get your booze. And then also just kind of undercutting other characters that you're getting from native ingredients. Yeah. So really it's dealing with the quality of native ingredients and dealing with the either lack of or expensive imported ingredients. Interesting point, depending which era we're talking about, sugar started being refined and grown in Australia 1860s onwards. Even then, and, and you, you tend to think that having a, a product in country would have been you know, the, the way to go. They were importing sugar from Java, present-day Indonesia and Mauritius, well into the early 20th century. Now, I think they built a flavor profile because when you get to the beginning of the 20th century, you're moving from bottled conditioned beers to bright beers that have been artificially carbonated. Allied to that, the trend to use more glassware, making the, the product in the glass needed to be bright and not cloudy and that sort of thing. I think the sugar as a dilutant was quite an important consideration there. And they built this pattern of, of use. The flavor that you get from sugar is, is a characteristic of, of most Australian beers. Oh, and I totally forgot. We should, we should totally uh, tell people if, if you, if you're not aware of invert sugar, when you hear brewers talking about particularly brewers of British extract, they're talking about particular sort of sugar syrups where the molecule has been sort of chemically altered. So it's easier for the yeast to get to. But particularly when you're, uh, when Peter's talking about one, two, three, and four, there's specific grades of the sugar syrups that are also different colors. I know Chris England, who's worked closely with Ron, has on his website a methodology for recreating invert sugar, both the hard, correct way and an easy cheater way. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I use the, the dilution method. It uh, seems to work well. Yeah, and uh, yeah, basically it's diluting a sugar syrup with molasses, black syrup molasses in a particular ratio in order to get a close approximation. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very handy technique. It, it is. Um, now, I, I made a statement a couple of minutes ago, and I'm thinking, hmm, I just said that sugar had a flavor. <laughs> well, well, white sugar doesn't really have a flavor. In some older cases, they were using raw sugar, which still has mm. some of that, um, say, demerara. I'm not quite sure. Are you familiar with demerara? Yep. Yep, demerara, turbinado. Uh, and then we see we see a lot of raw sugars from South America and Central America here too. Yeah, so so they would they would have uh, some residual molasses, and you get those trace elements in the invert. So the invert, I think, does provide flavour. White cane sugar is is as I think you said is basically a fermentable. The corollary to all this is that you've got mostly malt in the grist, pale malt. If it's an old type beer, you might have uh, what's called hydride malt. And what I've seen is that uh, the logs mash quite high, uh, up to uh, 72C in some instances. And I've, I've pondered over this. 
I think what it is is that they they really needed to boost the amount of dextrins there to give some body to the beer because the dilutant effect of the sugar would make for a pretty thin beer otherwise. So yeah, so you're talking almost 162 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. Uh, so yeah, I mean that is pretty aggressively high. Yeah, and and it's it's quite consistent across um, uh, the records that I've seen. Has have been the techniques of uh, semi decocting uh, or double decocting. It's only speculation, but I would I would suggest that they the quality of the malt, mostly floor malted in the early part of the 20th century, could well have meant they were trying to deal with the lack of modification in the malt by by using semi-decoction or or double decoction because they were very keen in the first part of the 20th century about the food value of beer which meant that they were expecting a residual gravity in the beer would that be kind of like the whole sort of notion of uh, guinness is good for strength that same sort of campaign style yeah again marketing's not new there were a lot of the guinness ads are um Guinness for strength and all the rest, but but there were also um, some big crazes about pure beer, and I've read quite a few articles where the the advocates of pure beer were wanted the brewers to brew without sugar. They wanted all malt beer because they were expecting uh, higher residual gravities. Bear in mind that most of the beer was for the inverted commas the working man, and it was important that the working man got some nutrient out of their beer other than falling over. <laughs> well, that's a mental health benefit, but <laughs> yeah, that's interesting to hear hear those kinds of things repeated. Because I think these days, if you were to tell somebody, "Oh, you know, this beer is good for your health," or "This booze is good for your health," outside of maybe the whole red wine thing that's good for your heart, I think you'd have people up in arms about what are you trying to do? Well, red wine good for your heart? Um, any scientific evidence, or is that just good marketing as well? Well, supposedly there are French medical studies, but it's the French, and they probably say wine is good for everything, including a toothache. I think that's a fair point. <laughs> All right. Well, I wanted to go back and touch on one thing. So we talked about invert sugar as a as a thing, and the amount of sugar seen in Australian beers, and some of that push pull against pure beer versus the regular sort of beer. Which, by the way, is the same sort of thing we see in the microbrew world here in the U.S., where people are like, "Our beers are all malt. None of that rice and corn stuff, patooey." But you you made mention about a couple of different varieties of malt, and I, I wanted to take this and segue us into talking about okay. So you're looking at these brewing logs, you've got old ingredients and where you can suss out a recipe, where you can figure out what was in it. You're still dealing with the fact that barley varieties have changed over time, malting techniques have changed over time, just various little decisions here and there have changed over time. One of the ones that you'd referred to was, uh, I think it was high-dried malt. Mm. And so I'm, if I had to guess, just putting on my deduction hat, I would say that's kind of a more toasted base malt. Yeah, it was It was good in the in the Tui's logs. Um, they had a a drum type malting system uh, on site at, as did tooths and some of their records were still were still there and they had classified the various malts into two row and that would be typically chevalier six row uh, which was a cape which today we would would be a feed grade barley and the great advantage with the cape and you see cape in the recipes 10 15 percent it was cheap and then you you've got high dried and very high dried and i know it's not exact because the color of the malt is not necessarily the flavor that you would get from the malt but the toasting of the malt would contribute to that so 
they had the color descriptions of these various malts. So I looked for an equivalent in in malt available to home brewers, and I came up with that that high dried fundamentally the low end it might be Marisotta. Probably Munton's mild ale malt is about high dryedish, or a lighter coloured Vienna malt. Now all the suppliers have Vienna malt, and they're all different colours. And from what I could see on their kilning temperatures and durations and what's published, I tried to line up. So I've said hard dried in, in the log. I tend to go with a Munton's mild, mild ale malt and see how that came out. Very high dried Munich, Munich 1. I, I don't know what the situation is in, in the States for six row because it's really hard to get six row in Australia. You can still find six row around here because it has a large domestic use in terms of domestic ales, or sorry, domestic pilsners. Uh, so you can find it, uh, but on the homebrew level, it's getting harder and harder to find because it's being phased out. Yeah, I got my, uh, the brew shop got me a, a sack of six row Castle Pilsner special order, which I've still got some left because I, I felt that, that grainy feel that you'd get from, from the Pilsner malt. I think you could probably substitute it with a fairly bland, not very flavoursome, not like a Marisota where you're going to get biscuit, something that's fairly neutral you could probably put in as a substitute. That's been my methodology, if you like. So you, you can't get, even though there's been an article about Chevalier being grown in the UK, I was lucky enough to go to Fawcett's Maltings last year. James Fawcett, uh, when I asked him about potential of having a heritage type thing he said well our two heritage ones at the moment are uh, floor malted golden promise and, and marisotta and chevalier's just just not economic anymore yeah, well and let's let's hope those never go away because those are wonderful yes uh and i i hope they keep even at a premium price uh they're probably the closest things you could get to uh perhaps what a chevalier was like well and that's interesting that he had that reaction because on the main program, we were just talking, Weyermann, uh over in Germany just went and bought a whole new malt plant. They bought out a competitor, mostly to work on their old-fashioned heritage malts. So, like, they're actually planning on bringing back more and more of the things like the Barca Pills. Kind of interesting to see those two different viewpoints. So that's that's a UK viewpoint. Uh, I am encouraged in, in Australia, there's, um, there's some smaller... I think the current term is craft maltsters mm-hmm. in both uh, Australia and New Zealand, Voyager and uh, somebody else whose name's escaped me. They're of a size that they can they can choose to do smaller batch sizes. And perhaps we'll have the opportunity of, um, of seeing some of these uh, heritage ones. At the Australian National Homebrewers Conference in Adelaide uh, last October, uh, there was a presentation from, from Cooper's, and they're building an on-site maltings at their brewery they're very keen to use schooner malt which is not a current variety because the the bulk of malt in australia is exported to china and places to the north in asia they quite like schooner for the way that they operate and schooner is a from memory 70s 80s mm-hmm. uh, but it's got good brew house performance was really the what i took away from the talk so you know, as the market gets segmented and you need to differentiate, having having these different flavors um, 
can only be good for us. Well, look, I'm, I'm not going to argue. I love this period of time that we're living in for the fact that there's more and more opportunities to try things. I think one of the things that I noticed in the book and in Ron's work and other folks who are sort of spelunkers of beer log history, that when you look at the old school ingredients and recipes, you can see that these guys had a much narrower range of things they could choose from in comparison to what we do. Nowadays, we have uh, availability to lots of things. Although one of the great things to learn from the book is also the fact that despite the fact that we think of globalization and the availability of ingredients everywhere as a modern thing, it's very, very clear from looking at the logs that you went through that there was an awful lot of American hops being used in Australia. Yeah, uh, um, malt from Chile from California. Quite often you see Oregons or Californians, particularly in the in the 18th century, mm-hmm. sorry, the, the 19th century. You get to the 20th century and really there was a level of protectionism that came into vogue. Mm-hmm. I wonder where we've heard that recently. Anyway, these things go in cycles, I suggest. So, so you have a country that's been federated in 1901, fairly protectionist government. They put duties up on imports. And that really uh, generated, particularly in hops, it generated enough interest for the growers, particularly in Tasmania and parts of Victoria, to really get geared up. And and they were using um, cluster sets, bohemian sets, sets from Kent. You're getting a lot of localization of of the hop as a result of these protectionist actions. But in the 19th century, absolutely, globalized market. And I guess that's the reason why whenever I think of Australian beers, when I first started learning about beer, I remember Schooner Malt. And then the other one I always remember was uh, Pride of Ringwood as a hop. Pride of Ringwood, arguably one of the first high alpha hops. It was bred during the 50s, came into use in the 60s. And from what I've read recently in Tasmania, I don't think the main grower in Tasmania is growing Pride of Ringwood anymore. It's the other grower, Ellerslie, I think, in the Ovens Valley of Victoria. They're still growing Pride of Ringwood. So we've got to the stage where perhaps Pride of Ringwood in its heritage stage. It, it is fading into history. Yeah, which is really weird. Uh, There's just so much focus on not so much on alpha hops but on flavor hops nowadays fix secret and summer and there's a bunch of australian hops that are coming up this way now that are interesting but they're not historical yet no so for a a long period of time the signature hops in um australian beer because of the protectionism and the the buy local uh would be cluster and derivatives of kent goldings man i'll just say I do not have a good opinion of Cluster. <laughs> it's so funny to see it all over all of these old brew logs and old brew recipes. But hey, it's what they had. The Cluster, whilst they may have been the, the rootstock from the US, the wine term is terroir, they would have changed. And I have seen notes to say that the flavor of Cluster as it, I'll use the American, acclimated rather than acclimatized, but let's say it's been acclimatized. I've seen comments to the effect that those strong flavors become muted. No more blackberry cat piss, huh? Probably. (laughs) All right. All right. So we've covered a lot about older styles and the the ales that existed and the fact that stouts still kind of hang on there and that bitter lager is still a thing. We've talked about some of the changes in ingredients and hops over time. Were there anything about techniques that you've seen that you had to decipher that have also changed that you feel like have an impact? I think the 
the biggest technique issue from experimenting on, on rebrewing some of these is that you don't need to fear the sugar. If there was one message about all of this, my colleagues in the home brewing club, you want me to put how much in? Because they're, they're thinking kitten kilo, cidery flavors, it's not going to come out well. If you've got good fermentation practice and a decent starter, you shouldn't end up with cidery flavors despite the what is a fairly generous amount of sugar. So I think that's the major takeaway is don't be afraid of the sugar. The sugar is part of the profile of these beers and make sure you ferment it correctly. Sugar gets a bad reputation, and I think it get, gets a bad reputation largely because for years homebrewers didn't really understand yeast health and know how to make a fermentation actually work. What's somewhat ironic is that if this was a discussion about Belgian beer, it wouldn't even be controversial. It's true. <laughs> there, is a, there is a little bit of that sort of snobbery. Yeah. When you're using so much sugar, I have found that when I'm mashing and I'm doing a five-gallon batch in old money, you don't really have a lot of um, lot of grain in your mash tun, which means that you, you can be caught out a bit if you're used to having five kilos of, of grain in there and you're only down to three kilos. It does mess up your, your mashing routine a bit until you get used to it. Even trying to do uh, just beers that are extract added or even, of course, nowadays part of the rage around here is to do small batches, you know, a couple liters or a gallon or whatever. Once you're kind of built into that mindset where you're doing 20 liters or five gallons of beer, trying to go back and do a one-gallon batch, it sort of messes with your rhythm. It changes the parameterization, if you like, on the way you would normally do a brew. So you, you have to be aware of that, I think. Before we leave, though, I think we have to also plug a couple of things. So one is, I know that you know we haven't talked much about yeast, and there's a mix of fermenting lagers, warm, and fermenting even some of your... We talked a little bit about the bitter being done with a lager yeast. But I know that you have a yeast strain out there that you're trying to get out into the public. Thanks to uh, Chris White of White Labs, who um, got this... Um, yeast strain from the yeast bank in the UK and it's called WLP 059 Melbourne Ale Yeast. It comes from Ballarat. It was banked in 1936. It is probably the the ale yeast that was used in Australia in the first quarter of the 20th century and currently it is sitting in the White Labs vault at number six. Oh, no, 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 update. It's at number two. It has 202 orders until they ship as we were recording. Ah, that, so that means that another 202 people need to commit to buy it. Well, hey, it's a, it's a bargain price of 630 per, uh, per unit. So every podcast opportunity I've had of a U.S. audience who are members of the White Labs Club, us foreigners don't get access to that. So there's a lot of homebrewers in Australia that would be very thankful if a few people would put in for some Melbourne ale yeast. We did get a, a small amount from White Labs that I shared amongst the guys in the homebrew club. And it is um, it is a good fermenter, gives gives you nice bready flavors when it's fermenting and, and does the job. Well, and then you have a couple of alternatives. Like, I mean, obviously we want to get the Melbourne yeast out there because, hey, that's going to be fun. But what other White Lab strains do you recommend for trying to tackle some of these old Australian recipes? A lot of the processes were related to um, Burton Unions in the 1900s. So WLP 023 comes out a nice clean beer. 013, you'd like it a bit more minerally. Yorkshire yeast, one of my favorites. It's got a nice um, nice profile. That's 037. But to help with keeping a residual amount of dextrin in there, 
going for one that some strains that don't attenuate too much. So uh, European ale yeast 011 or 002, the uh, reputed fuller strain, mostly because they, they don't attenuate too much. So it seems like our keys, if I can summarize, to recreating some of these old Australian recipes, and we'll include a couple of Australian recipes on the website and in the podcast notes, are mash high. Don't fear the sugar. Get a low attenuating strain and really expect that you get kind of a, a little bit of residual sweetness out of it. Um, I'm not so sure you'll get too much residual sweetness, but you will get a better balance in the beer because the drying effect of the sugar versus having some malt by having that some dextrin there because, you know, it's 60, 40, 60, uh, 70, 30 mix. So anyway, it's, it's an area of experimentation until you get to what you like i would i would recommend having a crack at the tooth crystal ale that's one of my favorites i made one over christmas with a slightly different gravity when you say a slightly different gravity do you mean a slightly bigger gravity no uh a lesser gravity so that i had a um a, a summer quaffer for over christmas uh it came in just under three percent it still sort of messes with my brain a summer quaffer to have at christmas you guys in your upside down world well don't forget we're still in the future that's true. I was also going to just kind of laugh because that is so atypical from an American homebrewer's perspective where I think a lot of American homebrewers are going to take a look at something like the Triple XL and go, well, you know, 1046 is kind of nice, but you know what's even better? 1060. <laughs> kind of push for it a little bit further. Well, they're all on percentages, so I mean, it's not you could scale up or down. I just see it as, well, I've used my own book as a resource to create this beer, which has got the same grist, but I've used modern hops. I use Topaz and I use my homegrown clusters and it came out a just an easy drinking beer. And when it's 30, 35, you don't really want a big, heavy beer, I don't think. And that's centigrade, by the way. Uh, yeah, I figured. <laughs> Trust me, we're, Denny and I, we are big fans of Session Ales and we are we are trying to push people to pay more attention to that that end of the spectrum and get away from all the heavy booze and heavy hops and heavy flavors to the point where April 6th is still uh, International Session Day. We will make sure we have a couple of recipes online so that people can attempt to have a truly international session beer for their International Session Beer Day. And in the meanwhile, just want to say thank you, Peter, for uh, taking the time. I know it's a holiday there, and I appreciate you talking to the audience about sort of a subject I don't think a lot of Americans have ever given a lot of exploration and time to. Uh, now, if people want to go and pick up the book, they can actually pick up the book via lulu.com. That's correct. It's a publish on demand. And don't forget to look for the uh, the discount coupons that they tend to do periodically. A totally awesome thing. You can go buy the book and it gets printed just straight special for you and delivered to your home. We'll include uh, a link to where you can follow uh, Peter's adventures at, at Facebook at facebook.com slash bronzed brews. Uh, is there anything else that we need to tell the audience before we leave, good sir? No, but I, well, yes, I've been accepted to give a talk on Australian sparkling ale at what's it currently called? Homebrew Con 17. So hopefully uh, I will get to talk to a few people there as well. So I think that'll be a good topic to come back and revisit on so that we can kind of get more people thinking about and, and sort of exploring the topic of beers not from the U.S. and beers uh, from different locales and influenced by different cultures and climates. And not necessarily from the U.K. either. I, I think it's a, a very good point. If you stop and you think about it, for most of people's beer knowledge, people tend to think, OK, so if I'm going to study about beer, I've got to study from the U.K., Belgium and Germany. And then all the weird stuff that Americans have done to it, which is mostly boozifying it and hopifying it. And the rest of the world is kind of left in these sort of unexplored realms. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, everything is derivative, but it it also uh, it's also evolved, and it, the whole the whole industry continues to evolve. So, yeah, I'd, I'd see so many parallels in the present from having looked in the past. All right, I think that's a great point to leave us on. Again, if you want more of uh, Peter's adventures, go and look at Facebook.com/slash/BronzeBrews. Please pick up the book. It's it's really kind of uh, fun and inspirational, and I'm not kidding. When I sat down and I read it uh, last year when it first came out, I was like, oh, man, now i got to make room in the brewing calendar to do some of these things because this just sounds way too good. So, well, th again, thank you so much, Peter. And thank you. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this exploration of Australian beers with Peter Simon. We actually taped this episode a while ago, so a brief update. White Labs changed their vault structure, and by the time you hear this episode, the pre-order date for the Melbourne yeast will already be passed, but we'll put a note up on Facebook real quick so that everybody knows to try and go and order it. So pay attention and see whether or not Melbourne yeast will be available in your area. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can always drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew.com or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Facebook, on Reddit, on just about every homebrew forum out there. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in iTunes, click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more for our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is the San Gabriel Valley Humane Society. Until next time, remember to always brew wacky, and the brew is out there. <laughs>